This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've lived and worked in Fayetteville, Arkansas for almost 30 years, and I began self-work almost six years ago now in order to extend the walls of my practice to help you understand what therapy can be, what it is, and how it can be helpful to you, and also what it's not. Now, self-work isn't therapy, but I am a psychologist, and I'm going to tell you my thoughts and feelings and describe often many things that happen in therapy so that you can make a judgment for yourself. Maybe you're already in therapy. Maybe you're a studier of psychological and emotional issues. Maybe you've just been diagnosed with something or there's something in your life that's not quite right or you don't want it to be that way and you're trying to change. But also I want to reach those of you who might think of going to therapy as something kind of strange or that therapists themselves are a little weird. <laughs> That's okay. You're welcome here, too. In fact, you're more than welcome. But if you like self-work because we talk about what you can do about it, very common sense, this interview will be incredibly helpful to you. I'm a therapist who focuses a lot on how to move from negative, destructive thinking to much more positive, motivating self-talk. And I've learned that how you talk to yourself highly influences what you actually do. For example, I've asked people who are fighting viciously with one another, a mother and daughter or a couple, to imagine what they want their relationship to look like in five years. And all of a sudden, their communication improves or is less vitriolic. Another example is, in order to distance from pain, someone will automatically move from saying, I feel sad or I feel overwhelmed, into referring to themselves in a second tense. When you know something like this happens, you feel... So they go from I to you. It's good emotional management. It turns out that these techniques have names and labels. Ethan Cross is a highly respected researcher from the University of Michigan, and his new book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It, identifies, verifies, and organizes these techniques for you. I really found this so interesting. He's one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind, and as an award-winning professor at the University of Michigan's top-ranked psychology department, he's the director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. That sounds like a great job, doesn't it? His research and teachings can show you how you can very purposefully change the way you talk to yourself so that you find more calm, resolution, creativity, and empowerment. And he shares animated stories of how that chatter can lead to struggle, giving Simone Biles as a recent example. If you remember, she opted out of the last Olympics due to her awareness that her own thinking was negatively influencing her performance. And in so doing, she honored the idea that your mental well-being and inner life has to be considered when making decisions. I was so proud of her for doing that because she was scared she was either going to harm herself or her team. So in this episode, sponsored by Athletic Greens, or AG1, I know you'll be fascinated by Dr. Cross's inspiring and useful ways of changing your inner conversation. But before we get started, let's hear their offer. I just drank my Athletic Greens this morning. Talk about changing your inner conversation. (laughs) It really helps give you the energy to do that. 
Our partner, AG1, has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens, frankly, because they were interested in sponsoring self-work, and I never recommend something to you without trying it first. With one scoop of AG1, whose taste is somewhere between sweet and tart to me, you'll get 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, probiotics, adaptogens, and whole food source superfoods, which support everything from your gut to your immune system to your energy level. I love it because whether I'm home and about to go out for a walk or traveling and about to spend time with friends and family, I can start my day proactively, knowing I'm doing something for my own self-care. If you're like me, self-care can get lost for sure. In fact, its founder, after having severe gut issues, realized he was taking over $100 a day worth of supplements, which had their own very complicated dosage routine, so he created Athletic Greens. To make it easy, and because you're a self-work listener, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is to visit athleticgreens.com slash selfwork. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash selfwork to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So here is Dr. Ethan Cross as we talk about his book, Chatter. Thank you so much for being on Self Work. I, one of the things I absolutely loved about your book, you know, when I first picked it up and it won these prizes and everything, oh, this is going to be kind of scholarly and ethereal. And I'm a pretty common sense kind of therapist. And then I got to the part where you started talking about Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock. Yeah, well, and I'll just say, I think, you know, there's a time and a place for talking with big words and, and heavy jargon, but. I was very adamant that writing a book for to communicate science was not the place to do that. And so I'm really happy that you had that reaction and appreciate my, my Star Trek references. The stories that you told in the book, there, there are several of them, and they come from these really diverse places and and all ages and all cultures. And it was just it was fascinating. Oh, I'm so delighted. I'm eager to ask, is this your first book or have you written it? It is. It is my first book. Um, took, took a long time to get done. It was about four, a four-year labor of love. Wow. And um, it's, it's, really, it's really nice to be able to share it now with folks out there in the world. You're with the University of Michigan, right? Yeah, I'm a professor here. I, I direct a laboratory, the Emotion and Self-Control Lab. And I'm a professor in the psychology department and the business school, um, which is gives me access to all different sorts of um, people and, and lets me have really interesting conversations. The, 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 the really remarkable thing, which probably comes as no surprise to you and may not come as a huge surprise to listeners is it doesn't really matter where the person comes from. They're all dealing with chatter in some shape or form. So, um, so there's always a lot to talk about. I thought it was very fascinating how you began really with the story about your dad, that he had told you to go inside, you know, for answers. And that's how you became so interested in this internal dialogue that's ongoing. Can you tell the story about that a little bit? Yeah, my dad was an unconventional parent, or at least he he, he was in my eyes growing up. I think maybe all kids think their parents are unconventional. <laughs> um as a parent now myself, I, I think that's probably true. My dad ate, ate black-eyed peas over vanilla ice cream. I thought that was pretty weird. 
Well, I, I think that is pretty weird. Um, so I think you definitely win on the the culinary weirdness there. Well, what, what made my dad weird was, on the one hand, he was a caricature of a New York middle class dad. Um, you know, in the 1980s, he had a big, bushy mustache and was very free with his cursing on on the highways in New York. Loved his middle finger, if you know what I mean. But when he wasn't like doing that kind of stuff or watching the Yankees or playing catch with me at the park, he was meditating and um, reading the Bhagavad Gita and talking to me from the time I was three years old about what he was learning about in Eastern philosophy. This was not a college professor, mind you. My dad didn't graduate from college. He just became fascinated with the contemplative side of life. And one of the first lessons he taught me was, hey, whenever you have a, a question you're struggling with, um, you get into a fight with mommy or me or something happens at school, just go inside. Try to find the answer inside yourself. Get to what he called the kernel of truth. He was very melodramatic. And, you know, when he told me this as a kid, I would roll my eyes. Um, initially, like just in my mind, I would roll the eyes, but uh, increasingly externally to him as well. And I, you know, leave the room. But there's a funny thing that happens with kids and their parents, and I'm beginning to see this with my own kids now. They pretend to ignore you and not like what you have to say, but the things you say actually penetrate. And it took a while. It took until I got to college for me to come around to some of those lessons. But I ended up um, making a career out of trying to figure out how people can effectively do what my dad was telling me to do, which is go inside work through problems effectively. Because what we know is that this capacity that we possess to introspect, to, to work through our problems, yes. this is a, it's a remarkable tool of the human mind that serves us well in so many different ways. This ability to introspect is, this is what lets us solve problems, build spaceships that blast off into outer space and all sorts of other kinds of innovation, but it also, it gets us in deep, deep trouble as well when it morphs into what I call chatter, that dark side of introspection. That Just the name of the book, chatter. The name of the book, chatter. Yeah. What, anyone who's ever experienced some trouble worrying or ruminating about things knows what chatter is. It's, you're trying to work through a problem, but you're not making progress. You're overthinking things. You're catastrophizing. Um, you get stuck. And when we get stuck, that can have really negative consequences. So what I've long been fascinated by and what I've been studying for the past 20 years is why does that happen? Why is introspection sometimes helpful, other times not? And when it starts to run off course, what can we do to bring introspection back on track? And that's what that's what the book is really about. As I said before, you tell lots of stories. I think one of the, well, all of them are really interesting to to think about and to read about. But Rick Ankiel, I'm not a baseball person. Very so. close, Ankiel. Ankiel. Okay, so can you tell his story a little bit? What what I've written down here is skills fail because of inner conversation that you can get unlinked and chatter blurs attention. Right. So so first, let's start with Rick Ankiel, who was a what what we call a phenom uh, baseball player. So when he came into the major leagues, he was touted as having the potential to be one of the next greatest pitchers of all time. And throughout his first year in the league, that's exactly how he prefer, performed. He was a lights out pitcher. He was the ace on the staff, the person you wanted to give the ball when the biggest game was um, upon you. 
And his team, the St. Louis Cardinals, ended up getting into the playoffs. And not surprisingly, they gave him the ball to pitch in one of sure. those games. And something very interesting happened to Ann Keel during that first playoff game. A batter came up to the plate and he threw a wild pitch. Now, if you've ever pitched, and I, I used to play pitcher, I mean, let me tell you, like wild pitches were not uncommon and they're not for most. Like it happens with some regularity, but not for this player. Part of what made him so incredible throughout his career was his pinpoint precision. He could he could guide a ball within a centimeter, a millimeter of where he wanted it to be. So he throws this wild pitch and then he stops, pauses and thinks, thinks to himself and he, and he says, huh, I just threw a wild pitch. Tries to shake it off, winds up, and then does the exact same thing, even worse this time, and again and again and again. The story of Ankeel is a really um, powerful illustration of of how chatter can undermine us uh, when it comes to our ability to perform. What happened to him is um, a pitching motion is something that includes lots of different steps, right? You know, a pitcher gets on on the mound and doesn't think to him or herself, hey, I need to lift my foot, then place it forward with my toes pointing where I want to throw the ball, make sure to breathe deeply, extend the hand back, squeeze the ball on the seam in a particular orientation, and then let go and follow through. You can't think about all those things at once. What makes pitchers able to be successful is they learn through lots and lots of practice how to link up lots of different behaviors so that they can execute those behaviors automatically. When I pick up a baseball and throw it to my kid, I don't think about how to throw the ball. I just do it. What we've learned in the lab is that when you get a person who has achieved that kind of ability to do things automatically, when you start get the, getting them to focus on the individual parts that constitute that behavior, mm-hmm. The whole thing unravels. So if, if I when I go to the park and I lift the baseball, I start to think, am I squeezing the ball tight enough? That's when I start to throw the ball into the sand rather than into the opponent's glove. And that's what happened to Ann Keel. He'd be on the mound and he start he re- reports starting to think, Am I am I lifting my leg high enough? Do I have enough velocity here? And he actually um, was never able to regain his form. So he he had to leave the major leagues ultimately reinvented himself as an outfielder, but never pitched again uh, in the way that he did initially. And so what his story is a great example of is how the conversations we have with ourselves when they morph into chatter, how they can undermine us when it comes to our ability to think and perform in situations that really matter. A, A great additional example of this happened last summer in the Summer Olympics with Simone Biles, who yes. the greatest Olympian of all time at what she does. She dropped out of the Olympics, the grandest stage for her, because of experiencing what she called the twisties, which is just another name for chatter. Mm-hmm. Right? She started overthinking her performances. Am I running fast enough? How many somersaults do I have to do? Did I do it? And once you start getting into the weeds in that way, the whole thing unravels. Now, as a clinician and as someone who developed panic attacks when I was in my late 20s, actually, when I was doing something I had done thousands of times, and all of a sudden I couldn't do it. How do you think that's different from developing a panic attack or anxiety about something? Or do you, do you think those things are synonymous? 
I think chatter exists on a continuum. And it's something that uh, many people who have never had any clinical manifestation of a, of a problem like depre- clinical forms of anxiety, depression, um, you can still experience chatter. And I think, uh, in fact, I think most of us do at some point in our lives. When chatter gets to an extreme, both in terms of intensity and duration, that's when you see it taking on a more clinical form. Chatter is thought to be what we call a transdiagnostic mechanism. That's one of those big, big words that I tried to keep out of the book. But what that means is we do see this tendency to get stuck in these negative thought loops as a key factor that drives different clinical manifestations of depression, anxiety. So it's certainly relevant there, but, but a big point of the book is to, is to say that if you've ever experienced chatter before, um, welcome to the human condition. Most people have, and it doesn't mean you are suffering from clinical forms of anxiety, depression. It's, it's a part of life. And that's why I feel so strongly about sharing what we've learned about the tools that exist to manage it with folks. This was probably my favorite quote of the book. The inner voice is valuable, not in spite of the pain it causes, but because of it. And then you go on to say, the challenge isn't to avoid negative states altogether. It's to not let them consume you. I just thought that was eloquent. So you talk a lot about the whole way of approaching chatter, a way of approaching trying to make changes that, that you think would be valuable to you and, and seeking help for that, that too many people, probably we therapists, focus too much on empathy and not enough on solutions. You used this analogy of there has to be some kind of combination of the empathy of Captain Kirk and the problem solving of Mr. Spock. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think this is um, this is one message that I was really hopeful to to have land with readers because I think it touches on such an important issue, which is when many of us experience chatter, we're often very motivated to share share it and in all its glory with those around <laughs> us. Which is to say, we're motivated to talk to other people about it. Um, there's a lot of reasons why we're we're motivated to often talk about our chatter. Uh, there are a couple of exceptions to that rule we tend not to want to talk about experiences involving shame and certain forms of trauma but for many others we we often can't wait to get it out and our culture tells us to do so right A, a message we often hear is just vent your emotions just express them don't keep them bottled up inside what we've learned is that venting alone is not sufficient for helping people manage their chatter. When you find someone to express your emotions to, talking about how you felt and what went through your, what, what you experienced in a particular situation, this can be really good for, for strengthening the friendship and relational bonds between people. Like it's good to know that there are people out there who genuinely care about me and are willing to take the time to listen. The problem with vent, with venting, if that's all you do, is that you don't do anything to work through the problem. So you leave the conversation and you're just as upset, if not more upset than when you started, because all you've done is rehearsed all of the bad stuff over and over again. What science suggests is a, is a healthier way of navigating these conversations with other people is to do two things. You want to find people who do 
initially take the time to listen, validate, empathize, normalize your experience. These are all really important features of working through chatter. Unconditional, yeah, Carl Rogers. I love it. And, you know, one of my favorite uh, psychologists. That stuff really does matter. But we also ultimately need to help people reframe how they're thinking about these things. We need to find ways of helping them look at the bigger picture, put this experience in context to ultimately allow them to move on so that it doesn't continue to bother them. That's what the the, the, the signature of a good chatter advisor is, if you want to use that phrase, right? It's finding people to talk to who take the time to listen, but then also help help you broaden your perspective. The reason I think knowing about the science is so important is because many people genuinely want to help us, but they don't know how to do it. And so what you end up seeing happening is you get lots of people who just ask questions about how you're feeling and, oh, that's terrible. They're empathizing and that's all they're doing. Exactly. And and that gets us into instances which are really unfortunate. They're instances of people who genuinely care about us, genuinely want to help who sometimes just make things worse. You use the term immersion, you know, that people get immersed in it and you can drown in that. It's as if you, I've certainly have had experiences where people write to me and say, you know, I'm, I'm in therapy and I'm really doing a lot of, you know, going back over and reworking the past and looking at trauma and talking about trauma, but I'm not getting better. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. That's exactly the phenomenon. So it's about finding that right balance between accessing the emotions, getting the empathy and support, but then getting into that more solution-oriented mode. And, you know, depending on the person and the situation, some people may need to spend more time expressing before they're ready to go into this advice reception mode. Um, that can vary not just by person, but but by the kinds of situation that they're dealing with. So there is an art to, to, to being a good chatter advisor to others. But I think that the take home for listeners here can, can really be twofold. Number one, if you want to talk to someone about your chatter, think carefully about who you should talk to. So I, I have like very carefully reviewed who in my life helps me in, in the way that I've just described. They take the time to listen, but then also help me put things in perspective. And there are three or four people. I don't need a huge amount of people, but that's my board of advisors. And it's a tremendous resource that I possess. Those are the people I call. There are many people who are very close to me. I love them. I love hanging out with them, but I don't talk to them about my chatter because I know they're not going to help me work through it. That's one take home. The second take home is if you're on the other side of the equation and someone comes to you with some chatter that they want to talk about, use this as a a, a kind of scientific blueprint for navigating those discussions, right? Be mindful of these two principles, listen, empathize, validate, but then at a certain point in that conversation, don't forget to go broad. I want to get to these specific techniques you talk about, but before I do, because people who listen to self-work know that I've written a book about what I call perfectly hidden depression, which is a lot of the a lot of it is fueled by this this chatter, this these inner voices, but it's very shame filled and because it has to do with early trauma. So you make the exception that people do not want to talk about their shame. Is that something that you've studied scientifically as well? Or I'm actually personally curious about this. This is not something that I myself have looked at in our lab, um, but 
other researchers that I cite in the book have looked at this. There's been a lot of research that has um, studied the science behind sharing emotion. And it's really a fascinating line of work. there's a Belgium psycho- Belgian psychologist by the name Bernard Remay, who, who has been a leader in this domain. And Remay's work has, on the one hand, shattered a few stereotypes, which I find interesting. And I talk about this in, in, in Chatter. For example, there's this lay belief that, you know, uh, what is the expression? Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Is that the old school, right? But But the idea that men don't like to talk about their emotions, whereas women do. Turns out that that's not true, that both men and women are motivated to share their emotions with other people when they're experiencing strong ones. But in his work, he and others have found that there are certain subsets of emotional experiences that are pe- people are more reluctant to, to talk about with others. And those involving shame and embarrassment, as well as certain forms of trauma, um, fit that bill. And and the, the idea on the surface, I think, makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, if there's something that we're, that we're ashamed of, um, you know, that is a social kind of emotion, right? That, that, that part of that negative response is based on how we think others are going to respond to us when we, when they discover something about us. So in a certain sense, talking about that with someone else is a way of potentially only magnifying it. Um, which makes it, as you know well, um, a particularly challenging um, emotion to, to navigate um, and help people. Here's an interesting just little sidebar. Um, lots of people are actually ashamed to reveal their chatter. Even when it has nothing to do with being, nothing to do with shame, but um, like when, when I've asked people, hey, what, what's streaming through your head right now when you're experiencing chatter? People don't even want to go there, right? And I think that's really instructive too and, and, and can actually have some value for folks, just recognizing that we often say things to ourselves and think things to ourselves that we wouldn't even contemplate articulating out loud to someone else. Like that's a way of putting our chatter in perspective. Sometimes in fact, one, one of the studies that you quote um, said that literally they had people write down everything that their head was thinking or their mind was thinking. And I, I was very struck by what some of the people talked about. It was like, wow, you know, did I brush my teeth this morning? I'm not sure. I don't remember. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah. 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 That was uh, the, the sidewalks of New York city. Yeah. Study. Yeah. That was really like- fascinating. You can go listen to those, by the way, online. Those recordings are available. Okay. So I want to talk about the specific techniques of what you call distancing. And um, I've written some of them down, journaling being one of them, but third person saying your name. I've I've actually already talked to a patient about that. So your work is going well with me. And I said, just say your name and talk to yourself. Fly on the wall, temporal distance. Uh, seeing stress as challenge versus threat, just you can start wherever you want to. <laughs> well, one of the things we know about chatter is that when we experience it, we we tend to become immersed. We zoom in on the problem so narrowly, we can't look at the bigger picture. And what we've discovered is that when that happens, doing things to zoom us out, to give us some psychological distance from our experiences can actually be quite quite helpful. And it turns out there are lots of ways of zooming us out and allowing us to take that step back to think about our experiences more objectively. And so I'll, I'll just, um, I'll respond to a few of the tools that that you brought up there. Uh, one thing we can do, something we call distance self-talk, really, really simple. 
Uh, use your name to reflect on your problem and try to work through it. Hey, what would Ethan do here? Ethan, what should you do? Here's how you should manage this. One of the th- reasons why we we know that this is a useful tool is um, it allows us to think about our circumstances more similar to how we would give advice to another person. And we're much better uh, in general at advising other people than we are advising ourselves. When you use your name to work through a problem, it turns on the brain machinery for thinking about other people. Like when do we use names? Almost all of the time that we use a name or the second person pronoun you, we use those parts of speech when we're thinking about someone else. So you use your name to think about your own problems and it's it's putting you into this advisor mode, which makes it much easier to um, work through a problem effectively. So that's probably the first thing I do when I experience chatter. As I was uh, reading that, I'm aware of watching people in my office that when they need to distance from an emotion, they start saying you or they don't use I anymore. They use either their name. and That's just something they do in order to handle what they're telling me. Absolutely. I mean, you see this happening spontaneously oh, yeah. with some regularity when people are trying to control themselves or manage a difficult task. And what we've learned is that you don't have to wait to just spontaneously do this when something inside you beckons you to do so. Knowing about the science allows us to be much more proactive in using this strategy when we're when we're struggling. So because I've used this strategy quite a bit in my life, like as soon as I detect the chatter brewing, I instantly go, all right, Ethan, Here's how you're going to manage this. Now, there is a caveat associated with how this strategy works. You don't want to do this out loud while walking down a busy city street, right? (laughs) Like I do this silently in my own head, or if I'm alone in the house, I could do it that way too when no one's around. But but you, you do violate social norms by doing this out loud in front of other people. So you want to be a little careful with that. That's one distancing strategy. Here are a couple of other really, really simple ones. And I love the fact that a lot of these tools, by the way, are easy and simple to use because the simpler things are to to use, the more likely people are to use them. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything, by the way, that I talk about in the book and, and, and right now is are grounded in science. So these are all scientific tools, not based on anecdote. Um, Temporal distancing. When we get consumed with chatter, we feel like the walls are caving in and we lose sight of the fact that all of our emotional responses tend to be um, temporary. Like things come, but they eventually go. Um, And we lose sight of that in the heat of the moment. What temporal distancing involves doing is asking yourself, how are you going to feel about this tomorrow or a week from now or a month from now? This is what I do when I wake up with chatter at 2 a.m., which happens to me every four to six weeks. Um, I hear it's common, right? I'm, I'm sleeping. The chatter just awakes me. And it feels awful because normally it's the chatter is about something pretty trivial. But within the span of 15 seconds, it goes from being about something trivial to losing my job to being in jail to dying, right? That's the chain of events. When that happens, I say to myself, how are you going to feel about this tomorrow morning? No matter how bad the chatter is at 2 a.m., I always feel better about it when I wake up the next morning. Mm. But I don't always, I'm not always mindful of that. Simply reminding myself about that does something powerful. It, it, it highlights that what I'm going through will eventually pass, and that gives me hope. And we know that hope is a powerful antidote 
to a chatter program. I I couldn't help but think probably some of the most vicious arguing that's ever occurred in my office are between teenage daughters and their mothers. And at times I would stop and say, okay, so you're 14 right now, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you think you want your relationship to be like with your mother when you're 24? Oh, oh, I I want us to be have lunch and you know and <laughs> so, so shopping you all sorts of spitting at her right now so anyway it was it's very effective they kind of go oh i hadn't thought about that so what's so interesting to me about this space is i talk about lots and lots of different tools in the book as you know oh yeah 26 or at the yeah. end right so there are lots of different tools some of these tools i think are tools that people have stumbled on in their own life. They've kind of used them on and off, but maybe weren't aware of of why they used it. And I think knowing about the science surrounding how those tools work, that allows us to be much more proactive and deliberate. So you don't have to wait to stumble on a tool that's helpful. You can just do it. Other tools that people use, I think they're doing things that are potentially harmful. There are things that they think that are going to help them, but actually don't. Venting is one example that we already talked about. Then you've got other kinds of unhelpful avoidance-like tools that people regularly go to. So you want to know what the bad stuff is um, as well. And then there are just wacky things that science has shown to be useful that really haven't been on people's radar. And, And knowing what those tools are can be effective as well. Can you name one of those wacky tools? Um, well, I'll give, it's wacky for me. What I've learned <laughs> is that it's not wacky for other people. So cleaning and organizing is super wacky for me. I'm, I've, I, I've always thought of myself as having like a relatively organized mind. Like I can think clearly about things, but when it comes to my house growing up, like the big, you, you said the biggest fights in your practice were between teenage moms and, and their mothers. I'll tell you the biggest fight in my home growing up was between me and my mom over the condition of my bedroom. Oh, <laughs> there was clothing everywhere. And, you know, I just, I was fine with why, why do you have to hang it up? I just, I'll take it off the floor when I need it. And I've gotten better over time, but there still can be a trail of clothing from the bathroom to the closet. Um, And it drives my wife crazy. When I'm experiencing chatter, I do something out of character. I go around, I clean and organize. I put everything away nice and tidy. When I'm done cleaning and organizing my office, I go into the kids' room and I put away their stuff. When I'm done doing that, and that takes a while because they're taking after their dad right now, (laughs) uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and clean the kitchen. So that to me was a tool that was not on my radar. It turns out that this is something that many people do do when they're stressed out. They organize and clean. And we we now know why. Because when you're experiencing chatter, you don't feel like you're in control. Your thoughts are are, are taken over. Your things in your mind are out of order. Mm -hmm. And you can compensate for that very distressing experience of not having control by exerting order and control around you. Mm -hmm. This is also one of the reasons we think rituals can be very helpful. Now, rituals are things, as as I'm sure you've encountered in your practice, which often get a bad rap, I think, because they're often talked about in the context of certain forms of anxiety, synonymously, oh, if you do a ritual, like if you engage in a rigid sequence of behaviors the same way repetitively, that means something's wrong with you. In fact, rituals are are one of the oldest tools that we know of for managing chatter. 
Think about what happens when someone dies. Most people know exactly what they should do when that happens because their culture gives them a ritual, mm-hmm. a set of behaviors they should implement when they're grieving, right? Rituals help us because they give us a sense of order and control when we otherwise lack it. And, and so that's another tool that when used in the right dosages can be, can be helpful. That, that certainly wasn't on my radar prior to researching. The I love the section on ritual and especially that part of it. It's that's about placebo. I had a medical student. He was a, he couldn't pass his third exam. He, in fact, he was suicidal. I mean, he was when he first came to see me and it turned out that he also loved to play this video game, and I've forgotten what it was, but it was some sort of boxing game. And what he loved to do was put on these boxing shorts, and he would win his game, and he was very good at it. Well, I had him put on his boxing shorts the day he was going to go take the final exam, <laughs> and he was fine. And I think nice. that placebo, you know, of I've, I've got my mastery on, I'm good at this, and I'm powerful, and it, it, we really worked on it, and he did a great job. And it's amazing how that kind of symbolism and ritual and how you ascribe meaning to something that's going to help you. Yeah, placebos are another one of those tools, and they're tightly interconnected often with rituals, but there is great power in expectation. Um, Believing you could do something has been shown time and time again to influence not only how people feel, but how they perform and and also their physiological responses. And so um, that's another tool in the toolbox. Now, I I think that's not, you don't want to stop with placebos you can you can do better by going beyond them but what's so just remarkably beautiful to me about this thing that is the human condition is the fact that we have all of these different tools that are just waiting to be used to help us when it comes to our chatter these are simple things they're side effect free but we don't necessarily know where those tools are and um you know, you've certainly spent your career, I think, teaching people about what these tools are. And and I think knowing about them can make a big difference. But what I loved about your book, and I want to talk about the last chapter, I so believe in awe, in, mm-hmm. in having experiences with awe that just you don't quite understand what's happened, but you know it takes you somewhere else and it, it readjusts your mind and gives you perspective. And so that's a gorgeous part of the book. The last part, uh, you tell the story of a young girl who raised her hand in class and said, because you had taught her these things, and but she raised her hand and said, why are, we le- why are we learning this now? Why didn't anybody teach it to us when we were starting this course or when we were starting this year of study or whatever it was? And that led you to think, you're right. I need to take this work to young people. I need to take this work to people who are starting out their lives rather than, you know, waiting for them to pick up some book that I've written. And I, I just thought that was such a inspired and, and very motivating thing to do with your work. Where are you with that? Well, that, that episode in the classroom, which was, you know, absolutely like a spike on my personal timeline in the, in the sense of just a, a kind of wake up call, like, what are you doing here? That led to two initiatives. One was writing the book and I can check that box off. Yep. The other is uh, a project where 
I brought together a group of researchers who study emotion regulation and self-control. They've done the original research themselves. And what we, we did is we paired these researchers up with teachers, uh, middle school, elementary and high school teachers and curriculum design experts to work collaboratively with them to take what we know about the science in this space and translate it into uh, fun and engaging lessons that students will actually enjoy learning about. And so, so we did that for several years. We started this project in, I think, 2015 or 16. COVID put a little bit of a hold on it, but we've developed several versions of a curriculum that teaches people about the science of how to manage their emotions. And we actually just recently launched the first phase of a very large study with, I think, close to 10,000 high school students from okay. Georgia, where we taught them this curriculum, and we're going to be looking to see what implications it has on, on their lives over the next few months. So, um, so that, that project is coming to an end and is really exciting. And, and that's such a, again, to translate your, your book and your work into a course, into teaching, into getting this information to people long before they, they don't have to stumble on it. You know, That's they don't right. have to somehow wait to have their own wisdom to, to know that this works. I have a, an ending question for you. Is your father still alive, by the way? Yes. And so what does he think about this book and this idea and this, you know, that you have taken his guidance and turned it into such a really phenomenal offering to people who are eager to, to learn it? But, you know, he's very proud and um, still likes to give me lots of lessons uh, <laughs> about how to do things better. And uh, those lessons are still always well received. Still using his third finger a lot? <laughs> Don't you know it? Yeah. So I, I'm surprised it's not significantly larger than all of the other fingers, given the amount of activity it receives. Um, that's that's part. Of, that's maybe for the topic of a, a separate book on growing up in the mean streets of New York in the 1950s and 60s. But, um, but no, he's, he's, um, he's always been wonderfully supportive. Um, and, you know, he never had the opportunity to go to college and learn about how to actually do science. He's always loved reading about science. And so it's, it's always fun to be able to talk to him about these things. He, he likes learning about what's happening in the lab and so forth. Well, thank you so much again. The book is Chatter, and it's The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. And this is Ethan Cross, and he's at the University of Michigan. And thank you so much for being on Self-Work. I appreciate it more than you know. Thank you for having me. I know you found that interview really, really helpful. I've already suggested some of those ideas to my own clients, and they're really helping, especially the idea of talking to yourself in third person. Like I would say, Margaret quit it, or Margaret, what should Margaret do here? It's very, very handy. Of course, thank you for being here. I've gotten some wonderful reviews on Apple Podcast for self-work. And here's one. I stumbled upon self-work almost a year ago when I was looking for podcasts about self-help, specifically around depression, after a devastating breakup, and also feeling incredibly lost and unfulfilled in my career. Dr. Margaret and this podcast are an oasis of insights and actionable information that are generally helpful, as opposed to just superficial platitudes. And I think this episode is a good example of that, right? 
Dr. Rutherford has a very soothing voice and calming manner, and I always feel safe even just listening to her, even when there's an episode about a topic that doesn't really resonate with me personally. One of my favorite things about her is that she validates people's feelings. That really made me feel good. I've never considered that, but I'm glad that comes across. She never makes anyone feel bad or wrong for what they're feeling. She only offers gentle help for healing. There are a handful of episodes that I must have listened to ten times already, and they never get old. Thank you for what you do, Dr. Margaret. You are touching more lives than you know. I get teary-eyed when I read that. So thank you to to it Nutrition. I can't tell you what your words mean to me. You can hear that I'm kind of teary-eyed at the moment. You know, my team, John, Christine, and I do a lot to make this podcast something that you will enjoy. And so hearing that you will enjoy and learn from. So the fact that you took the time to leave a written review means so very much. I've also gotten some new reviews and ratings for my book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, and that's always nice to see. You can get that at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any of the indie books, or your own bookstore. I had someone contact me just this week who said, I've been resisting buying it because I didn't really want to admit that I don't like feeling out of control, and I was afraid of a book that would suggest maybe I loosen my grip a little bit, but I bought it, and it's really making a difference. So thank you for that. You can join me on my website, drmargaretrutherford.com, and if you subscribe, you can get a weekly newsletter that includes my weekly blog post and podcast. It's an extremely easy way of keeping in touch with me. So thanks so much for being here. Take very, very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.